It is very annoying. Feel it, young Skywalker. Here we go. All right. See if it stays there. We are in part seven. Just coincidentally, it happens to be the finish of the series that I've been doing over the past several weeks on reasons for godly giving. And again, as I've done I th- almost every week, I may have skipped a week in there because of this, for the sake of visitors and especially brand new people who haven't been here and heard this little spiel of mine up front, is that I'm very sensitive to the oversensitivity, or I should say rightful sensitivity in a lot of cases, on people who are rightly sensitive to the way that churches can uh, often bludgeon people week after week after week into uh, you know, digging into their pocketbooks. Pocket, what is a pocketbook? I, I don't, that's an antique term, right? An archaic term? Anyway, your wallets, your, and I don't know. Anyway, I'm very sensitive to that because of that. This is only the third time now in 27 years that I have given uh, a full instruction, if you will, on the particular subject. The last time was, what did I say, 10 years ago, and before that, 14 years before that. So that's for benefit, of, again, of those of you who may be uh, new to the church and think, oh, yeah, here we go, same old thing. They want our money, blah, blah, blah. I get that. I feel your pain. Um, but this really has very little, if anything, to do with enriching the coffers of the church. It has everything to do with the fact that a holy, loving God who came to redeem all of us and all of our life here and now, not just the life after we die and we're in the great by and by, but all of life here now. And that's why he's granted to us, according to Peter, everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so the extent to which we follow his, his guidelines for making it well in this life is an extent to which we will have success as it's defined biblically. Now, there's a ton of caveats that I could throw onto there and would need to be thrown on there. But again, that's, we'd spend the entire time talking about nothing but that. So where we are today, again, as I said, is part seven. Coincidentally, the number of perfection, completion, which means, and I didn't plan it that way, that everything that needed to be said will be said today. And uh, as I still scramble to try and figure out what I'm going to start on next week. So, reasons for godly giving. This is to recap where we have been last week, because again, all of these messages are contiguous, and you can get them online at our website, and I strongly encourage you to do that. This is something that affects virtually every Christ follower that there is, and even though they don't know it, it actually affects the unbeliever as well. So, we were talking about credit card debt last week. And specifically, some ways, some ideas to get out of that horrid bondage, that slavery, to use the words of Solomon in the Proverbs, of getting out from being the slave of the lender. And it is a very real slavery, and unfortunately, some, perhaps even many of you, know that all too well. So again, very quickly, the first four points that I made last week was just paying more than the minimum on your credit card. You know, your bill comes and it says you can either, obviously, you can always pay it off. Um, 
or as the vast majority of Americans do, they pay the minimum on there. So you may be carrying 12000 Actually, I think the fa- uh, average family household debt, credit card debt is like 16000 which just boggles my mind. So you make that minimum payment. Well, add to that minimum t- payment in a concerted way to end the agony sooner. And it's not going to happen overnight. But it will end. And I know of compelling stories of people who were ridiculously in debt but who are now out of that horrid debt, paying more than the minimum on your credit card. Secondly, I talked about snowballing your debt payments, which simply means that as you pay one credit card off, okay, let's say, let's say you just, for ease of, ease, of, ease of explanation, you have two credit cards. One, your minimum payment is $50 a month. The other one, uh, minimum payment is $75 a month. You paid that one off finally. So what the typical American does is they go, oh, we've got a $75 windfall now. No, don't do that. Take that $75 a month. You're used to paying it, right? You've done what you had to do to pay that and take that $75 now and put that on top of the $50 minimum on your other credit card plus whatever else you can do on that. And always start with your highest interest rate credit card. That's that way as you go down the line on your payments, however many credit cards you have, your payment just continues to snowball and you get out of debt, debt that much quicker. Next, I talked about cashing out your savings account, which probably would cause some people to gasp. And I probably should have put an asterisk on that. Okay, doesn't mean you have to deplete your savings account. You should keep an emergency fund of sorts. But, you know, within reason, keep an emergency supply. Beyond that, cash it out. You know, the point two-tenths of 1% interest that you're making on that is negligible compared to the 18% on your credit card, which you're paying out, which is the average today of credit card uh, interest. So cash out that savings account. Put it all on your highest uh, you know, um, credit card interest rate, and again, get out of debt as fast as you can. All right, new material. Number five, getting a home equity loan. This is where you have to discipline yourself to review life, if you will, mathematically. Stand outside of the emotion of, you want me to what? I want you to tap into your equity on your home to get out of to, to get out of the eighteen eighteen uh, percent interest rate you're paying on your credit card. Now, the big asterisk 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 that's a lot of asterisks. The big thing you have to remember on that is that once you're out of debt, there you go back and pay down your mortgage now faster and everything else. Unfortunately, there's a common tendency, again, for Americans to take their equity that they have. They've liquidated. Let's be optimistic that you've got enough equity to even liquidate your credit card debt. And now they go, we're back being credit card debt free. Oh, now's the time for that ATV. 
I mean, after all, it's only your monthly minimum payment, you know, is only going to be $75. I can get my ATV. And you're, you're now complicating and even making your debt worse while feeling better about it for the moment. You have to resist that. And that takes us in not to the immediately next one, but after the next one, I'm going to talk about another uh, uh, thing that you can do, but there's a big caution with it. All right, number, uh, doesn't matter what number it is, borrow. This is another one that you're going to go... <laughs> Borrow from your 401k if you have a 401k. Now, there's some real benefits to this. If you borrow from your 401k, okay, not okay, not all of them let you do this, but I think most of them do. When you borrow from your 401k, it's your money, which means you are borrowing your money, and there is an interest rate to pay that loan back, which you will have to do or pay some big consequences later on. But the interest that you pay back while paying back your 401k, guess who gets it? You do, because it's your money that you've borrowed. That's by law. So you see there's just all kind of advantages, plus you're trading now a a, a low interest rate when you go to pay back your 401k loan, then there is again on your stinking 18% credit card debt, which is killing you. But again, you have to have the discipline to go back then and undo basically what you did. The next and really the last one I'm going to talk about, there's, there are others, um, but this is one that's, uh, again, it, it's, I don't know how popular it is. It is common. Remember our friend Stanley Johnson? We ran the video a couple times. That was an ad for a debt consolidation company called Lending Tree. Okay. I don't know if they're good, bad, or indifferent. Again, you got to do your research and read the fine print on those companies like that. But what they basically do is if you've got, let's say you've got five credit cards all with you know debt up to the hilt on them, and you've got this debt on uh, your car payment or whatever, they take all of your debt and they now make it one brand new loan, which makes your total payment come down substantially from paying off the other ones individually. Okay, But, again, the caution, just like as with the home equity loan, is that you have to have the discipline to then take care of things and now not spending what to you feels like a windfall because whereas you had debt absorbing $2,500 a month, now it's only absorbing $1,800 a month, which means we've got a $700 a month windfall. We can go spend more. No, that'll kill you. So you have to make some fundamental changes in your mindset and in your patterns of behavior. And that, I contend, requires supernatural empowerment. Change in any arena of life has to be compelled by a change in one's thoughts, in one's values, in one's priorities that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed, or other translations, be changed by what? By the renewing of your mind. you got to change your thought patterns and processes and your whole view of debt and avarice and greed and lack of contentment. And it takes an act of God to help you do that. 
in this whole arena of finances and debt, there is also one key thing to remember as you go through life, no matter what your age is. But it's especially true if you are young and kind of just starting out in life. And that is that if you are one of millions of Americans who think that because someone is willing to give you a loan, if someone is willing to give you a credit card with a limit of five, ten, fifteen, or twenty thousand dollars, or they're willing to give you a loan for X number of thousands of dollars, remember they are not your friends. They're not doing it because they love you. They're doing it to make money. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way it works. And everybody benefits if it is done properly and with balance and with priority and all the caveats that I've explained over the past several weeks in this series. So it's not like I'm trashing lenders. Where would we be without lenders? Well, <laughs> yeah, I want to re- never mind. Forget I ever said that one. Gee, we'd have to have to actually pay for things as we go along. Hmm. Go figure. Untenable in the world we live in, for sure. All right. Let me give you a real-life example. McKenna Gray and her husband decided they were going to start looking for a new home. And so they did what a lot of people do, and they went out and they got pre-qualified for a loan which cuts down on the red tape and the time lags that you run into when you're trying to buy a new home and actually get into it. So they went and they pre-qualified, and to their absolute amazement, which is an understatement, they were pre-qualified for a $2 million loan. Now you're sitting there going, well, they must be filthy rich. Well, I don't know what their income was, but they had never had any intention, no expectation, not in their craziest imaginations of buying a six, a seven-figure, rather, price tag house. So rather than heed their good friends at the loaning institution's advice about what they could handle and what they could float, they sat down and they figured out how much they believed they could comfortably pay, comfortably pay every month for a new home. Before they looked at their first house, they had taken care of all of this in their minds and in their hearts and with nothing to do with the bank's recommendations. So instead of starting to look for a $2 million property, they started and were not going to go over $500,000. Good on them. And they ended up buying, they, were, they lived in northern New Jersey, by the way, that's where this was all taking place. She said, McKenna Gray said, I cannot imagine what our stress level would be or how crazy our lives would be if we had listened to the banks about what we were were approved for and we went out and bought a $2 million home. They ultimately bought a four-bedroom house in Elmwood Park, New Jersey for $425,000. Going full circle now, okay? We're going to kind of park 
That's basically all the new material, sort of, concerning debt, concerning uh, everything that we have talked about. Now we're going to go full circle, and now we have to come back right to the very beginning. We have to come back to week one and the foundation for this whole intertwined, interwoven segments on biblical counsel concerning our finances. So let me start out by trying something, and, and I, I really struggled to try and word this right, because it's supposed to make things clearer. Sometimes I make things worse, um, but let me try. So let's say that you were setting out to build your own home, or by that I mean you know, kind of getting somebody to build it for you from the bottom up, unless you're creative like that and can do that sort of thing. And as you were planning out your ideal home and all of that, you started, you know, adding things up and seeing what things were going to cost and getting, getting quotes from contractors and that sort of thing. And you decided that to really get the kind of structure that you were kind of dreaming about, that you needed to cut some corners here and there to be able to float this new construction. And so... You didn't want to omit any of the, the cool things about your house that makes it kind of your dream house. And so you started thinking about it, and you decided, hmm, let's talk to our construction guy. We've seen the ghastly price tag on a foundation. Maybe there's some money to be saved there. So after talking to their, and again, this is totally fictitious, after talking to their concrete guy, and by the way, what I'm going to say from here on, I am not a construction guy. None of it is necessarily at all factual, not even in the detail. It is totally by way of a word picture. The concrete man says to you, you know, we like here in Maine to go down six feet because of the frost. And all of that where it comes in the ground and the, all the havoc that that can wreck on something. But you know what? I've been thinking about it, and I'm just looking back over the, the many past seasons and everything that I've been doing this. And I really think that we can get by with a four-foot foundation. And I mean, after all, you know, we're sure that Al Gore's right, global warming. You know, the winters aren't as harsh as they, they used to be in the old days. And so, you know, that's not really a concern anymore. Actually, it's maybe probably overkill. So we can get you a four-thick foundation. And that's what you do when you build your dream home. And lo and behold, in the next five years, because of, this is all sarcasm, because of global warming, the winters turned out to be particularly harsh with sustained sub-zero temps and the frost accordingly deep. The next spring, you notice cracks in certain walls. And you notice a basement crack that looks more like a fissure from an earthquake with water seeping in when you get really any kind of a rain. The second story signs are even more ominous. And your beautiful new home is in need of immediate, serious repair. Without the proper foundation 
anything that you do above ground may look great for a season or several seasons. But cheating on the foundation is going to catch up to you. And it's going to bite you. And it's going to bite hard with very sharp teeth. When I began this series, I started with the biblical foundation for a financial structure that yields enduring strength and perpetual security. And that foundation is called honoring the Lord with our tithes and our gifts and offerings because He has laid forth the financial roadmap for us with wording that God uses nowhere else in the Bible. This is what He's promised us. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Again, We've talked about that in depth on week one and week two, I think. So cutting to the chase, everything that I've laid out of a practical nature from God's inspired, infallible, and erred authoritative words pertaining to finances in general, to debt as a bondage, to contentment or the lack thereof, and pertaining to God's supernatural commitment to intervene, even miraculously as the one who owns all that there is to own, it is all dependent on the foundational principle that the Christ follower is faithful to bring in his tithes and his offerings and his gifts and does so in a spirit of generous faith with joy. with joy. God does not need our money. God's purposes, his work on earth will be accomplished with or without his people. So why does he put such a weight of burden upon us, his people? Well, I will speak only from personal experience first. With 43 years of experience behind us, that is Barb and I, I tell you with every bit of integrity that there is that it's not a weight of burden. It is not when we do it His way. And that's the key. Let me shift gears sort of a little bit here. Random thoughts from when I did this series, or roughly this series, I never do the same thing twice, from the past when I've taught on this subject. Someone asked me, they they emailed me, and I encouraged them to do so, shouldn't giving today be a matter of the heart and not some percentage? It's a great question. What does Scripture say? What has Scripture said? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. There it is. Not reluctantly and not under compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. 
So you got to do what you've made up in your mind to do in your heart, not because I was so convicted by what the preacher said. And just, I just feel like this, you know, the big hand of God is going to come down and smack the dog out of me if I don't do this. So, okay, fine, I'll give it a try. God says, keep it. Keep it. God loves a cheerful giver. But, I don't know, many of you know the name of the late, great Howard Hendricks, professor of theology at Dallas Theological Seminary, died just about four years ago. In his inimitable way, this is what he said about that passage. He said, God loves a cheerful giver, but he accepts it from a grouch. Those of you who know Howard Hendricks, you just went, wow, that's really an amazing impersonation. At least I think so. What has Scripture said? You do not delight, O oh God, in sacrifices, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, that you will not despise so yes it is always only ever and has always only ever been a matter of the heart but it was still a requirement and if i ignored it there were financial consequences again this is all touching on things we've talked about in the past seven messages so let me again try something a little, little, just a little different here again by way, of hopefully, of clarification. In the broader view of the Bible, not just on this particular topic, but on any topic pertaining really to life, isn't it fair to say that the Spirit-filled believer's heart is never simply to fulfill the letter of the law? Meaning, okay... What's the bare minimum to keep God off my back and whatever it is? Tell me. I'll do that. Maybe. I contend, and the scriptures would back it up, that being filled with the Holy Spirit, ours is not to just, you know, try and find the loopholes. Try and stay right on that line of propriety without getting uh, over on the bad side. But rather... It's to function in the fullness and the power and the might and the faith of God. Which means, all in balance, that the tithe, the 10% of one's income, was never an ultimate goal of giving. That's why we've not only tithes, but we also have offerings and we have gifts on top of that, all of which started way back in the Old Testament. In the New Testament now, Jesus comes along and Jesus is the new model, if you will, or the new goal rather than a raw mathematical percentage. That's why when the hyper-religious Pharisees were proudly giving their 10%, not 10.1%, but 10%, the letter of the law, thus saith the Lord, 
when they were there giving their 10% out of their wealth, and they were wealthy, it was the lowly little widow that Matthew talks about and Mark talks about in chapter 12 who came and put in two mites. In our context, you can think of them as being, being basically two pennies. And God was duly impressed because she gave 100%. It was all that she had. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And how does Paul then help the Corinthians, that's who he said it to, make sure that their hearts are in the right place in this particular aspect? He introduces his pointed reminder to the Corinthians about their pledge to give to the Jerusalem church, which was suffering from poverty and the bare, needing the bare essentials of life and all of that, and they had committed to taking a special offering, if you will, and giving generously, as they had already done in the past on other occasions, and to give it to the church at Jerusalem. And so Paul sets out just to remind them, refocusing them, to be sure to keep their heart in the right place. And how does he do that? He begins a chapter earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and here's what he says. He says, Oh, you know, though, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the preceding context in laying out chapter 9 for the verse that we're talking about and the context for which it occurred. Because apparently, and I cannot prove this, but Paul, I believe, got wind ahead of time that the Corinthians were thinking about backtracking on the offering they were going to receive for the Jerusalem church. Paul points them back to the point of origination or if you will, the point of motivation for all of our giving, meaning our giving needs to be gospel-centered giving, whether we're talking about a tithe or whether we're talking about a gift or we're talking about an offering. It's not merely a hard and fast 10%, not 9.9, not 10.1, but 10% as the end point, but rather our focal point is what did and what does Jesus give for me? And that must not be just a guilt-inducing cliche. I love the way the prophet Isaiah puts it way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 61. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul exalts in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and he has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. God didn't clothe me with just the tie to his robe and maybe a sleeve and say, there, you got a good start. No, he covered me because there is nothing about me to commend me to God. And so he made sure that he covered me. 
He didn't give me merely a holy tank top and a pair of perfect but incomplete jeans with one leg only. No, he covered all of my spiritual imperfections that condemned me to a Christless eternity. I am so thankful that God has given me more than 10%. And I'm eternally grateful that the one who owns it all gave it all for me just as he did for you as well. And so going back several weeks now, I said not only was the tithe never rescinded, some have tried to argue that, well, the tithe was Old Testament. You don't find the tithe in the New Testament. You do not find it in those words at all true. But you do not find it categorically revoked as you do with numerous, in fact, I could say many other Old Testament laws. Furthermore, even if all of the, well, no, not even if. See, I'm doing my theology as I go along here. Jesus came and did what? He fulfilled the law, right? Therefore, one could try to argue, as they do, that, well, therefore, the tithe doesn't hold because Jesus took care of all that. One little snag there, and I don't know if I touched on this way back on week one when I was talking about the origination of the tithe with Abraham and Melchizedek. It was not. There is no, you cannot find a beginning point to the tithe. You only find Abraham coming out, reportedly giving a tithe to Melchizedek, who I argue is none other than a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. Again, that's all review. Meaning, the tithe was never a part of the law. So again, it's outside the law. It's just God's plan, if you will, for mankind. And now think of that of this outside of a Christian context. Why does every virtually, I'm not aware of any, every and any religious known to mankind has some kind of a system of offerings and sacrifices to their God or gods. Hmm. Part of our innate makeup, I would contend. So the, old, the, 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 uh, um, the tithe was not rescinded in the New Testament, but like the whole law, only metaphorically speaking, Jesus heightened the whole law. See, some people tried to say, well, that's no longer coming on us. The law was done away with. The law wasn't done away with. The law was completed in Christ. But Jesus also very cleverly, if you will, did something with the law for those who like to go by the letter of the law. You remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you have heard it said, meaning, referring to the law of old, that thou shalt not murder. What Jesus say? But I say unto you, if you even look at someone with hatred in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Ooh, he took the law and he made it even, even more encompassing. What about adultery? You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you're guilty already of adultery. Ooh. So Jesus heightened our perspective from the Old Testament mandate of 10% as the bullseye to the bullseye now being Jesus, having given it all. 
So if you question the legitimacy about the tithe from a New Testament vantage point, Jesus, by demonstration, again, strengthened it to where 10% was only what was required, meaning it was only the starting point. The widow realized this, and she gave all that she had. If we reduce the notion of giving to God to a naked rule of law, do it or else, we have become then just like the Hebrews, just like the Pharisees, who were diligent. I mean, they were rigidly diligent to bring their goats and their bulls and their offerings. And God said, that's not what I want. I want you. And part and parcel of that is because I want you to be blessed. So here's the eternal principle, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good Work. The principle of Paul's inspired encouragement is that God blesses rightly motivated generosity with joy, not with gritted teeth. But not only does God bless the material aspect of our lives, but he also blesses the spiritual, the emotional, the faith aspect of our lives as well. Look at all the alls in that passage that I just read. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every, meaning all, good work. God wants to bless us, and that's nothing new. It was, it was the law of, of, if you will, cause and effect in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 16.9, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the ends of the earth that He might strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. And then God does something else for us because He knows our hearts better than we do. As Jeremiah reminds us, our heart is more deceitful above all else. God helps us to judge ourselves. In, in a way, the Bible says that we all have gauges on our instrument cluster, which give an objective reading of where our hearts are really at. And there are several of them, but one of them is for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Yee, that's a pretty good gauge. I put electrician's tape over the light that gets annoying on my... No, I didn't... I, Randy, I'm kidding. I've never done that. But you know what? The opposite of that is also true. Where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So presuming that the Christ follower wants to shore up this particular area of their life, let me now talk pretty quickly about some of the challenges 
to tithing to those who are not, and that's the vast majority of Christendom, and how to overcome those challenges. There are two main reasons so few Christ followers tithe, and that is, one, many don't really understand the biblical teaching on the issue. But honestly, I think a bigger reason is that they can't afford to because of debt. So you're in this quagmire. You want to start honoring the Lord in the tithe, but you, you can't afford to. We really want to. We really do. But honestly, sometimes, oftentimes, we don't give anything because we just don't have it. And that's where a lot of Christ followers are at. So, again, some questions to answer honestly to yourself. Why is that? Number one reason, again, debt. Why do you have debt? Number one reason, because anyone who has debt is because their outgo exceeds their income. You can't argue with that. But clearly the hardest question I field are from very sincere brothers and sisters who want to know how to tithe when they are up to their eyeballs in debt. So, let me talk about, and this is my own terminology, behavioral debt. Behavioral debt is brought on by our own voluntary choices. Meaning, things that we choose are not, you know, in the quality of what we choose, the level of what we choose, how much we pay for a house, a car, you know, everything. Things, decisions we make. You look at your credit card, and you're going to hear an exception here. You look at your credit card, and I'd be willing to bet there may not be a single debt uh, incurrence on there that isn't from behavioral debt, voluntary choice. Say, it wasn't voluntary. My washing machine died. (laughs) Just think about that and everything we've talked about in the past. Enough said there. Now, I segregate behavioral debt from what, again, my own phrasing here, of what I will call circumstantial debt. Circumstantial debt is debt from things that truly are beyond our control. And the best example that I can give are medical bills. Debt beyond your control. And it's a hard question. And the way, though, I try to navigate difficult terrain is seeing that God's plan for us is in any arena, not just finances. God's plan presumes a starting point on what I will call level ground. Meaning if we start on level ground with relatively clean slates without years or decades of negative baggage in tow, it's a lot less complicated. Here's what I mean. This is where my example may get, I don't know. When God tells mankind that his plan for the family, now this has nothing to do with finances. I'm trying to show you a principle here. When God tells mankind that his plan for the family is one man and one woman for a lifetime, his counsel emanates from a particular starting point. 
people tend to come to Christ, though, and it's a good thing that we come to Christ, not at this pristine level ground starting point. Already we come sometimes with multiple marriages in what is called a blended family. And so you're struggling as Christians with how to deal with now all the intricacies and the added complexities of what's called a blended family. And then the extended family that's now extended, at least for the the children and holidays and the in-laws and all of that, And the answers you glean from Scripture are not easy and, frankly, not all that satisfying. So, let me, here's, here's, here's what I tried, how I try to explain it. I try to equate God's directions for such issues. Again, whether it's finances, whether it's marriage, whether it's, family, you know, anything, all of that. I try to equate his directions for these issues to an antiques restorer. Someone who restores, in this case, they, they specialize in vases. Or if you're really pretentious, a vase. Love a... Anyway. The vase and the vases that the restorer works with obviously are old. They may be chipped. The paint is worn. They're dirty. They're smudged, any or all of that. But the vases that he receives for all of those imperfections are intact, more or less, having retained their original shape. If I'm trying to help someone in a first marriage where the children all have the same mother and the same father and hence the same in-laws and all of that, that's relatively straightforward. Not easy, but straightforward. That's a vase that is imperfect and needs restoration, but the vase is intact with the basic shape that it's supposed to be. But more and more people today come looking for help with such vases that have been dropped off the mantle and have shattered. And now that restorer is left trying to fit the pieces back into whatever intact remnants of that vase are left. It's a much greater challenge. So in the financial arena, two people just starting out being married without debt is going to find God's counsel in this area much smoother and more readily, joyously implemented. By God's goodness and timing and grace and everything else, Barbara and I had that glorious advantage in our beginning. We're married. We get saved. You want to get out of debt? Increase your giving to the Lord. Got it. Okay, boom. We look back over all those years. Smooth sailing. Miraculous sailing. But I understand not everybody has that advantage. In fact, today few people do. This doesn't mean that there aren't answers concerning the worship of tithing 
for the Christ followers in debt up to their eyeballs. But as I said, it does complicate things. So what do you do? Suggestions. Before anything and everything else, meaning before even sitting down to pay your monthly bills and all of that, pray for both faith and joy in growing in the blessed arrangement of God's, because it is his. Then with your spouse, if that's applicable, determine an amount to begin with, but more than what you have been doing. Not saying how much more, just talk to each other, having prayed about it. And of course, here I'm I'm assuming a unity in husband and wife, just to hang on for that one and coming next. Talk about it and agree to agree with each other to give a little more. And then ask yourselves the question in a period of time. And agree to do it for a certain length of time. I can't tell you what that time is. A month, two months, three months, a quarter, half year, whatever. I don't know. That's something you have to determine. But ask yourself the question when you have met that challenge. Talk to each other and say, you know what? Having done that now, having increased our giving, are we any worse off than we were before we were giving this amount. And if you both have to candidly and honestly say, you know what, no, we're not, then agree to going a little more for another period of time. And see and watch what God does. Okay, what if your spouse is opposed? What if your spouse is an unbeliever? See if he or she would agree to allowing you to commit to a certain amount. Again, whatever, whatever they're comfortable with. And see if they would allow to you doing that for, again, a determined period of time. And at the end of that time, ask your spouse, do you think we're any worse off than we were before giving this amount? And if you're not, see if they, he, she, would be willing to let you do a little more. Okay? I'm just trying to be helpful here. All right. Then again, wrapping this whole teaching up. I'll conclude with the two passages that I began with seven weeks ago. Well, seven messages ago. Haggai 1.9, you look for little, or you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to your own home. They were spending their money on any and everything else except what the Lord had told them to do in bringing in the tithes concerning the rebuilding of his place of worship. And then Malachi 3, I've already read it again in this passage. Put me to the test. Bring forth your tithes into the storehouse of God and put me to the test and see if I will not open for you the storehouse of heaven. This isn't a prosperity message. Prosperity message says you just gotta just gotta buckle down there, grit your teeth, and bring forth that seed offering, that seed of your faith, showing God how serious you are knowing that he's promised to increase what you bring now. If you bring me 10%, 
I could give you 10%, 20%, or even 100%, and they have the proof text to bring it out. That's prosperity hogwash. <laughs> no. And there's no guarantee. And in fact, it would be just like the enemy. As soon as you step out to do something like this, <laughs> your car, you know, drops its rear end or something. Yeah, yeah see, there, yeah, that's where it gets. Hang in there. You know, it's kind of, you know, that trial period, it's kind of like the stock market, right? If you do day trading, hey, I'm in for a, a, a couple of weeks and then I'm out again. Oh, you're going to get your lunch handed to you sooner than later. I tell you that from personal experience. Stock market, you're in it for the long haul. We've got 43 plus years to look back and go flawless. Doesn't mean we didn't have unintended expenses, even ridiculously big expenses. And we didn't go into debt over them because God miraculously fulfilled his promise of Malachi 3. If you have yeah, but questions, please email me. I'd be happy to field them. And by the same token, if you also have stories, I've already heard some. If, you're, if you have stories about, you know, boy, I, I, you know, but I did, and here's what happened. Here's what God did. I had somebody tell me after service last week. Let me know that too. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, I truly ache for people who are in that place of servitude to the master lender. And I know that you are a big supernatural God who wants them to be out of that servitude. I pray grant faith, grant willing hearts, grant that confidence in you, O oh God. And where there are unbelieving spouses or even just spouses who are not unbelieving, but they're, they're just, no way, we can't do it. Lord, speak to them about all that we've talked about over these weeks. It is for their good. Because you are a good, loving God. And you want the very best for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, rescuing us, clothing us with the garments of salvation, wrapping us in your own righteousness. In your name we pray. Amen.